Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. Welcome to another episode of the Pilot Boys Podcast. We are here for our Head in the Clouds interview series with Jared Wonderlick a good friend, a new friend uh, who I met when I was doing the Failing Forward podcast that he hosts. Uh, he's also the CMO of Go Mix Tech. So we both share a health and wellness background and interest. And uh, Jared, man, I'm I'm super excited that you were able to join us for this podcast. I am too, man. Thank you guys both for having me today. Uh, it's something I've been thinking about for a while and I'm super thrilled to be here. Looking forward to getting into it, man. Uh, you are uh, definitely a multi-hyphenate, so quite a bit to talk about here so let's let's get into it let's do it where we where do we start let's start at the beginning of your journey kind of in into adulthood where you grew up you know how you kind of built your 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 life into where it is today and the experiences that you had growing up that kind of moved you into the health and wellness field absolutely and uh, i actually really really like the way you worded that question because I personally attach a lot of purpose and meaning to my upbringing. Um, it wasn't until recently that I've started reading more into things like psychology, neurology, uh, things like that, but it's helped me kind of revisit and reflect on some things from my past to make more sense of my my present and my vision of the future as well. And to be honest, growing up, uh, as you both know, I grew up primarily in Colorado. Um, but uh, was was an athlete, a multi-sport athlete. Actually, was, had, was fortunate enough to play all the way up through college. Um, always did well in school. Never really had any issues there. But uh, honestly, when I got to college, that's when I experienced the most dramatic transformation, as I'm sure many people do. Um, mine, however, was one that I, I didn't discuss or, or highlight on social media a lot, at least when it was happening, which was because I, I had my first bout with um, significant depression, um, kind of got caught up in comparing what I had envisioned for my future with what everybody else was currently envisioning for theirs. And, and Partha, you and I discussed this uh, when you were on with me on the Failing Forward podcast in terms of attaching a little bit too much purpose and meaning to comparing where we're at with where our, our classmates or peers or friends are at as well. And um, that, that actually ended up causing a pretty dark turn for me. Um, it really shattered my perspective of my reality, uh, as well as forced me to really lose sight of any vision for the future. I was very, very focused at that point in life in the, the past events. You know, what did I experience that caused me to experience this negative um, energy or perspective now? And what I've learned through the years is that we as a whole tend to focus a little bit too much on the past. When in reality, what we should be doing is focusing, uh, putting a greater emphasis on our vision for the future. Because um, as I said, at that time, I didn't have a vision for the future. I didn't know what I, what major I wanted to study. I didn't know what I saw myself doing in terms of a career. I didn't know who I was going to be spending my life with. Um, and when you can't answer those questions, they can be very, very scary at first. Yeah, and it's also a cha very challenging time. The reality that I think is overlooked a lot is you go from being a kid to an adult very quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you're you're also dealing with what you're what you just said, the pressure of being in college, 
having so many options, having so many people around you. And when you're an athlete, competition is everything, right? So it's, it's also, mm-hmm. that's another part of the reason why I'd imagine that part of it was challenging for you as well, because you are a competitor um, at your core. And that was how you were raised to be, whether it's in school or whether it's in athletics, that's how most of us are trained. Um, but it's to deal with those emotions as you're going also kind of going through real physical and, and psychological maturity issues is, is something that I think is, is not discussed enough that phase of people's lives and how do we help them make that transition? Because it's like, you just drop kids off in college and say, okay, make your way. And I think there's probably a better way to do that for, for, for yeah. most uh, teenagers. Yeah. And, you know, just to add on, it sounds like, you know, growing up, it sounds like you're a pretty confident guy. I mean, just being able to make it to college sports is a big deal. Right. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, kind of going through the I'd say like the identity crisis of a lot of a lot of us go through, you know, was confidence still something that stuck with you through that? And it was really a lack of purpose that, um, you know, led you into depression or did you lose the confidence as well for a time? I would say from an outside source, it would appear that my confidence had remained consistent. Um, but internally, I think that a lot of that confidence had, had disappeared um, because, as you mentioned, much of my identity was tied up into who I was as an athlete. And it was even more so tied up into the perception I had created of what people expected of me. You know, it, it wasn't that my parents said, hey, you need to go to college. You need to get this degree. You need to you know, land a job in this field. They supported me wholeheartedly. I was the one who created that interpretation and, and created this pedestal, so to speak, of what they expected of me. And when I fell short of that, uh, that's what caused a very, very significant downturn mentally. Um, that being said, uh, that all became a great source of confidence for me. You know, I, I very often relate our mental challenges with that of exercise. You know, you never would walk into the gym for the first time and expect yourself to lift an abnormal amount of weight. No, it's your first time there. You know, it's yeah. you're going to be sore, you're going to be tired, and you need to continue to come back and, and repeat those exercises or those movements in order to see improvement. Yet, for some reason, we don't think of the same logic when we think of our mental fortitude. Um, right. You know, what we experience from a mentally challenging perspective is going to be significantly more difficult the first time. And the reality of it is what I experienced my freshman, sophomore year of college was the first time I had experienced that type of anxiety or that type of mental hurdle. Where do you think that that came from? Was it just you being on your own and, you know, the expectations that you had set for yourself? Can you dig a little bit deeper into that? Because I think a lot of people struggle with that, where it might not be your parents, it might not be your friends, it, it might just be how you interpret the things that you see around you. But a lot of us tend to have these expectations of ourselves that we can never hit, and it leads us to be dissatisfied. You're absolutely right, and, and I, I experienced it just like a lot of us do uh, at that point in time. And I think one of the biggest factors for me in beginning my transformation was having an open conversation with my father. Um, mm-hmm. So he was actually the first person I ever openly, verbally acknowledged that I had depression to, um, which itself uh, lifted an enormous weight off my shoulders and, and it honestly helped me uh, acknowledge what I was going through because for a long time I kind of just said no you're just going through a hard time that's not what this is like you're you're better than this you shouldn't have this kind of thing um, 
But having that conversation with him obviously prompted him to ask the question, well, well where do you think this is coming from? And then that gave me the opportunity to say, you know, I, I think I may have created a false interpretation of what you and mom expected of me. And at that point, he was able to reciprocate a very open and honest answer in that that's not what makes them proud of me. You know, a degree or a specific job or specific income is not what makes them proud to be my parents. And, and having that understanding, you know, even though it seems almost obvious, uh, having that open and honest conversation, uh, one, obviously allowed our relationship to develop and, and flourish a lot more, but it allowed me to put a lot of those perceptions to rest. And from that point on, I was able to start building a new vision for the future that fit who I was. And, and that eventually is what led me to, you know, areas in entrepreneurship, um, as well as, you know, things like the podcast, wanting to pursue public speaking. Um, you know, obviously those don't all come at once. It's something you have to develop over time, but it's, it's that vulnerable moment or situation that allows you to have the greatest and most fulfilling opportunity. Yeah. I wanted to, to, to touch, uh, on, on the beginning of your, your commentary in terms of telling your dad and lifting that, having that weight lifted. A lot of people who deal with depression, the hardest thing for them is sharing what they're going through with the people that they're closest to more likely to talk to a complete stranger. It seems to be more of a mental hurdle to actually have that conversation specifically with your parents or loved ones and not knowing how they're going to react to that. How much anxiety did you feel kind of going into that, that moment? Um, an insurmountable, an insurmountable amount of anxiety. Um, because like I said, it's not something you want to believe initially. And I, I would argue that probably most people feel that way, um, maybe after being told by a therapist or a doctor that they might be experiencing this, or maybe it's a, a conclusion they've come to on their own. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that we, we want to typically think of people with who face mental health challenges as people who are weak-minded. And I believe now the exact opposite. Uh, I think growing up, I probably had that initial interpretation, um, more than likely because it's something that just wasn't commonly discussed. You know, growing up in the early 2000s and the 90s, you didn't hear about depression. You didn't hear about anxiety. Um, if you did, it was maybe in a movie or something, and it was very few and far between. So you, you don't think of it as normal. You don't think of it as something that uh, happens to actually a very significant number of people. And... I think that just furthers the belief that it's something that you shouldn't have or that you're, you're better than to have, if that makes sense. And um, I really think if you do have one person in your life that you, although it will be uncomfortable, have the ability to have that initial conversation with, it's, it's a huge and impactful step um, in overcoming what you face. Because one of the biggest things you can do is one, face your internal dialogue, but two, acknowledge it verbally. And we, we rarely ever do that without just having an in-person conversation. Yeah. And I want to, I want to ask, you know, probably one of the most controversial questions we probably asked a guest uh, on the podcast, but what's your view on depression? Because I feel like this is my context for this question. I feel like there's a victim mentality that's in pop culture now. That everybody wants to be depressed or everybody wants to have anxiety. They want it to be a permanent thing in their lives. But in reality, many of the people who get depressed for a period of time get out of that at another period of time down the line. 
So what's your view on the illness itself and in the circles that you've been in and the friend groups you're in and the and physicians you've spoken to? What's your view on it? And what do you think is the appropriate mentality to approach a mental illness with? That's, that's an amazing question. And I'm, I'm glad you felt comfortable enough to ask that to me, um, because as you know, Partha, that's, that's a huge topic of conversation for us on Failing Forward. And to be honest, it's the inspiration behind the show in the first place. Um, and I want to answer that by, by starting this. My interpretation of depression, um, like anything else, has to evolve with me. Um, if I, five years from now, think of depression as the same way I do right now, then I didn't spend enough time educating myself on it. I didn't spend enough time thinking about it. I didn't have spent enough time facing my own internal dialogue. So I, I want to start by saying that because one, I, I think that's something that's often overlooked in terms of beliefs as a whole, whether it's pol pol politics, religion, um, personal beliefs. If you go through life thinking the same way you did in the past, then I'm sorry, I just didn't spend enough time really thinking about that topic. Um, but as far as depression goes, my perception of it is very unique. Um, I don't think of it as a negative at all. And, and that's because I've forced myself to learn about things like neurology and, and even biology. You know, in, in nature, stress is very, very much a mandatory and necessary part of the ecosystem. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is the, the biome that was created, I think, in the mid 80s. Uh, I believe I think it was an Arizona desert. Uh, a group of scientists built a perfect biome for nature. Um, it was the ideal environment for living organisms from top to bottom. It, it took years to produce and to create this environment. They, they begin the experiment, and within a couple of weeks, trees are just falling over, all over the biome. I can't figure out why. Well, eventually they found out, so they forgot to add wind to the biome. So without wind, trees do not have the stress response of growing their roots deeper and stronger into the earth's crust in order to have the strength to withstand the stress of wind itself. So what does that tell us? Wind is a, has a positive purpose. It's, it's not positive in usually how it introduces itself to us, but it's there as a motivator. Stress is in our lives and in nature to help us grow, to help us adapt, to help us evolve, to be ready for what's next. And I, I look at an example like that and say, why wouldn't I look at depression any differently? It is a internal stress that I'm experiencing on a regular basis. Okay, this is something I need to pay attention to. This is something I need to learn from. And it's something I need to experience. It's not something I need to suppress or, or avoid, uh, whether it be through vices or medication. Uh, this is something telling me that I'm not being who I need to be or I'm not who I need to be for the future. Um, and I know that might be kind of a wide view and not maybe as specific as you would have liked in an answer. Um, but it's, it's really what the last five years, six years has brought me to. Uh, and it allows me to face those depressive episodes in a completely different mindset than what I was able to do when I was 21, 22 years old. You know, it's, yeah. it's not immediate. I need to get out of this internal dialogue. I need to get out of this feeling. Um, it's it's a okay i'm not feeling great i don't like the way i feel but now i need to spend the time experiencing that emotion and asking myself what led me to it and what do i need to change moving forward um i i, I think it was uh 
I don't remember actually off the top of my head, but there was an actor who said something along the lines of depression is the result of you being exhausted by the identity you're portraying. Uh, it's, and uh -huh. I read that as the same way, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's something internal telling you that you're not in line with who you're supposed to be. And the reason I like that definition for me personally is really anyone I've spoken to who experiences depression, chances are they're not super happy with who they are. There's something or multiple things within their life that they're not very satisfied with. They're not very fulfilled with. There's things they would change. But unfortunately, they're so focused on suppressing the feeling that they don't spend time changing the things they're not very happy with. And, and to me, that's what allows me to hold on to this more positive outlook in terms of depression and mental health as a whole. Yeah, I think that's a very healthy way to look at it. One thing that I wanted to, again, circle back to in your commentary is, is this, that I think every human being, especially in, in our culture, no one knows who they are. You know, it's a process that you go through to find yourself. And for some people, the depression comes in with the challenges that come with that, right? If you're not asking yourself the question, I always say the sooner you start looking at life internally and start figuring out, okay, what do I represent? Who, I, who am I? The easier the external world gets. And I think mm -hmm. it's really hard to overcome that because of how society frames how we're supposed to think. You know, as we said in school, in athletics, it is a comparison between you and other people. You are constantly looking at how do I measure up to someone else versus looking at how do I measure up to myself, right? And what is it that I want out of life? And that's not the same as what Partha wants or what V wants. It's what Jared wants. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that that's why I like how you frame that question and, and the quote you asked about the, the actor. Now, my follow-up question to that for people out here speaking to what Partha said is how do we get people to, because I feel like if you just constantly are telling yourself you're depressed and acknowledging that without taking any action steps, which is a lot of people do. And that's what leads to a lot of the negative things like drinking, alcoholism, drug addiction, that are very, very harmful potential side effects of depression. What would you say to people out here in culture who are acknowledging or telling themselves they're depressed and reinforcing that principle, but never actually dealing with that depression and how harmful you think that could be. Well, I think you said a very, very valuable thing just a moment ago in the, in the perspective that people who maybe are acknowledging they're suffering from depression, they almost feel like they don't have time to truly face it or deal with it. I mean, that's why vices exist in my mind. It's to yeah. distract or suppress the internal dialogue. Uh, I mean, look at everything we have to keep up with today. We have to post on social media and show people that we're happy and fulfilled. We have to go to work. We have to have a side hustle. We have to keep up with politics and everything else going in and in pop culture. Like who has time to really identify who they are as a person and, and figure out whether or not they're really happy with who they are? Like we just don't have time. At least that's what we tell ourselves. I will absolutely 100% say I've experienced more growth and development and steps forward in life, um, whether it's financially in relationships and business, when I spend time focusing on who I am as a person, when I spend time solving, dealing with, facing my depression. When I do that, everything else aligns. Because what are you doing when you're really trying to figure out who you are? 
you're, you're aligning yourself with the path that makes the most sense for you. You know, if you're, if you're spending a lot of time putting on that face on social media or, or maybe spending time on a job that you don't really feel fulfilled in, well, of course you don't have time for, dep for depression. You're, you're spending all your time in things that are likely causing the depression in the first place. Mm -hmm. So by actually just granting yourself the opportunity, granting yourself the time to look inward, I truly believe that all those other factors start to align as well. Um, the right people come in your life and they, they end up being the right support system. Um, they bring with them the right opportunities for you. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that as soon as you start facing things, everything is perfect and, and problems just no longer exist. I mean, this is life. Of course, that's not the truth. But when I look at who I surrounded myself with in my early 20s versus my circle now, they are otherworldly. I mean, the, the, yeah. my partners that I have in business are people I can spend hours on the phone with just talking about ideas, you know, sharing energy, sharing uh, uh, ideas for the future, for business, for identity. Um, I wasn't having those conversations with those people at that point in my life. So by, again, I'll answer your question by simply saying, grant yourself that time and everything else will come into alignment as well. Yeah, man, that was, that was super powerful. Where did you learn how to build such an empowering perspective? Because I think a lot of people fall into the trap of talking about the pain they're going through or the problems they're going through. And by the way, when you share something, you get a dopamine release naturally. Mm -hmm. So that in itself, just saying, hey, I'm going through this, makes somebody feel better. But a lot of people stop there and don't do the mindset shift to to dig themselves out of the situation they're in where did you learn that and then how how would you advise somebody who doesn't have that character trait to um work on the way their mind works i'll, I'll answer that in two parts um one what you just said is absolutely correct we, we do feel good when we share what we're dealing with on top of that the brain is fundamentally created or structured to reward us with things like dopamine when we're working, not when we receive the accomplishment. We feel better when we exercise versus when we lift, when we win the weightlifting tournament a year later. Like that alone tells me that we maybe spend a little too much time focusing on the wrong things. Um, so even when you're looking at like something like facing mental health, that's work, that's stress, that's, that's something you're dedicating time and energy to. So yeah, it would make sense to me that I feel better when I actually dedicate time and energy to it rather than suppress it. Um, the, the second part of that is I, I've adopted a, um, a little bit more unique perspective in terms of identity. Uh, some of this comes from areas I've read, other bit, others of it just comes from the fact that I spend way too much time in my own head. That's, that's probably been <laughs> part why I suffer from depression. Um, but I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about this. I'm a big advocate of getting up early and walking during the sunrise. And that's my time to be in my own head. It's not always super, super positive. Sometimes I'm thinking about things that others would, you know, view as very, very dark. Um, but that's my time to explore my thoughts, explore who I am. Um, but I, I've adopted a, a perspective of identity. Uh, that, that differs a little bit from the traditional perspective. M most people think of identity as a linear line. So you're, you're born and you change and you grow and you adapt, but you're just moving along this linear line through life until we die, right? 
So my perspective is I look at this a little bit differently. I actually turn that line vertical. And every time I go through any form of transformation, I'm making an entirely new line. So it's more of a step transformation. Mm -hmm. And the reason I mentally create that visual, um, one, I'm a visual learner, so it helps me just connect to it easier. Um, but two, it's reminding me that I am letting go, I'm stepping away from the person I previously was. Because the person I was at 22, when I was initially diagnosed with depression, did not have the ability to overcome it because he was the one experiencing it. Who I am now is a completely different version of myself. And so it helps me physically become somebody new by visualizing this new line on this piece of paper. And I actually will do that sometimes in a notebook. If, I, if I'm starting a new habit, when I started meditating, when I told myself I'm reading 30 pages a day, uh, when I started walking in the mornings, all of those were new lines on a piece of paper with a little note to myself of what that new habit or activity was. And altogether, over time, I am slowly becoming somebody completely different than who I was five, six lines ago. And yeah. uh, again, I think, I don't think enough people understand that transforma transformation is not about habit formation. It is identity transformation. If you want to lose 50 pounds, it's not about forcing yourself to go running in the morning. It's about becoming the person that gets up and goes running in the morning. Bro, not forcing I could not resonate with this more. You're just, <laughs> you're saying everything that I've, I've been saying around me. So at, first of all, I think it's dope that when you change your identity, you're letting go of any past behaviors. Just the mm -hmm. fact that you identify as a new person means your baggage, your weight, your stress that you had even the day before is let go because you give yourself the freedom to start with a blank slate. Sounds like every day, which is dope. On top of that, I think what's interesting to me is that when you go through that sort of identity transformation, people who saw you in one identity at, uh, you know, for like a long period of your time, for example, your college friends, they get many, many people get very uncomfortable when you rapidly change your identity. This is something I've dealt with, something V's dealt with, something I know you've dealt with. How challenging was that going from college to now in terms of having to change friend circles, having to find people that shared, you know, a set of values you, you essentially modified to? No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and to be honest, uh, my transformation in terms of like my circle happened a little bit more dramatically than I might recommend. Um, to the, the, for me, honestly, it felt absolutely necessary. Um, yeah. When I reflect on that portion of my life, I, I identify with the fact that I was saving my own life and it required a dramatic transformation. So in order to remove myself from my circle in college and, and the circle of that area uh, was physically moving. I, I ended up taking a new job on very short notice um, and, and I packed up and I left. So I, I physically removed myself from the environment. Now, I'm not saying that if you have big aspirations and your dreams, aspirations don't align with theirs, you need to just cut them out of your life. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, what I am saying is the people around you will absolutely determine your future. And it is up to you to be a little bit of an editor of your life in that manner. Um, for example, the, like I said earlier, the guys I work with now, the guys I consider my best friends, 
they're never not thinking about how they're going to leave a mark on the world. They are 100% always in on what's the next business? How are we going to make this business the most efficient? How are we going to give back to the community? You know, how are we going to create a legacy for ourselves and for the business? That wasn't conversations I was having in college. And, and that is in part due to just who those people were at that point in their life as well. You know, I don't want to discredit any of those people. They still were meaningful relationships to me. And there's still a few that I do keep in touch with. But if you are really dedicated to making a significant change in your life, you have to be able to understand that every part of your day builds the vision of your future. So the people you're spending the your time with build who you will be in five years. What you do when you first wake up, whether it's look at your phone or get up and exercise, will determine who you are in five years. How long you spend on social media will determine who you are in five years. What you eat will determine who you are in five years. All of these little things that we kind of go through the day on autopilot doing are what is creating our identity. Everything we do, everything we think, everything we absorb. So if we actually take the time to pay attention to all those little things coming in, whether it's voices from our friends, information from our phone, uh, nutrition from our food, most of us would probably look at that and say, yeah, there's some things I can change. There's some things I can clean up. And it doesn't have to happen all at once. And more than likely, it shouldn't happen all at once because that is more than likely just going to cause you to come back to some of those bad habits that you're trying to change. Um, that's why I like my, my one line vertical method because I start and end with just one habit formation. It's what's this new habit I'm implementing? Meditating. There's my new line. Once that's cemented, great. Now it's walking in the morning. There's my new line. It's not just I'm waking up every morning. Overwhelm yourself, right? Yeah, because that's uncomfortable. I mean, any any new habit is uncomfortable. Why would you try to do 50 of them at once? Yeah. <laughs> do one, get really good at it, let that become who you are, and then incorporate something else. That See, is the thing. Yeah, listen, listening to this conversation, right? And I know there are people out here listening saying, Wow, this guy, this guy is pretty intense in, in terms of the process <laughs> that he's that he's he's gone through to get to where where he's at. And and the truth is that it takes courage, right? That's the first step. And I think you're right. A lot of people are very fearful, and that's why you see most of society, when you look at it, if they grow up in a town, the majority of people never leave that town. If they if they have a friend circle, they never explore outside of those boundaries, even when they get to college. I had friends in college who still hung out with all of their high school friends, and they're not growing that way, right? And it is a scary thing to grow and 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 put yourself out there in the world. I'm someone who's lived, I can't even count the number of cities that I've lived in now, but I think that by doing that and just by the action of picking up and going somewhere else, it forces you to grow and it forces you to see the world, see the world differently. What advice would you give to people? Because also I think it is, Everybody who says, I want to be successful, that Drake line, I just want to be successful. <laughs> if you don't do what Jared's doing or you don't find a way to do it and go through that growth process as a person, I don't think you'll ever really be successful. That's just my personal opinion on it. And I just wanted to see how you felt in terms of the people you know, for example, that you grew up with who are still stuck in that place and don't even know that they're operating in a position of fear. What advice do you? 
would you give people to help find themselves and get to where you're at, for example? Well, I'll answer that by, by saying this first. Um, everyone's version of success is going to be very different. I, I think we have a kind of group consensus that right now success means living in LA, you've got the, the Tesla in the driveway, basically you're Partha at this point. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but we all see what's going on, on social media. It's the private yeah. jets, you know, the fancy trips, whatever. Um, success can mean any number of things yeah. to you. To, to me, success is true fulfillment and what you get to do on a daily basis. Um, at least that's my perspective of it now. Maybe it'll change. As I said earlier, I kind of hope it does. Um, but I think the biggest milestone for me in terms of one, overcoming depression and two, starting to actually witness my life change in the ways I wanted it was understanding that what I want does not have to align with anybody else's opinion of me or expectation of me. Um, once you're able to completely separate your vision of the future from what you think other people expect you to do, that's when you will be the most comfortable with your goal of success. Um, because honestly, when I, when I first started building that vision of the future, a lot of it was tied to how people would see the outcome. It's, yeah. it's, I want the nice car, the big house, because I want people to see that I've done well. And that's, yeah. that's not a, that's not a bad thing. That's very normal. All of us think that way in some way, shape or form. I still catch myself thinking that way from time to time. You know, it's, I see a nice Mercedes. I'm like, man, I would love to have that Mercedes. And I would like to see people see me driving that Mercedes. That's yeah. not, that's not uncommon. Um, but at the end of the day, your vision of the future just has to be so uniquely yours. You know, like my wife's vision of the future is has always been the most unique. Like she just genuinely doesn't care what people think. She says she does, but I know she doesn't. Like yeah. when I talk to her, like, Hey, what, what do you see? Like at our house, you know, 10 years down the road, what do you see there? Her, she's like, I want uh, miniature goats outside. I'm like, cool. Like, hell yeah, let's get some goats. And uh, you know, I don't even have to question what that is because I know she's just thinking off the top of her head that waking up in the morning and seeing goats outside would make her happy. Like that to me is the perfect example of just, working for an outcome that is just unique to you. And, and I think that's, she, she's such a great, great inspiration to me um, really without even trying because she's yeah. just so focused on being happy and doing what makes her happy that it, it even reminds me that I need to, you know, focus a little less on the, the material items and more on the feeling uh, that I'm hoping to achieve, you know, that, that, that feeling that I have inside me when I'm sitting on that porch of the house 10 years down the road, you know, what does that feeling really feel like to me? Not the house, not the cars in the driveway. What does that feeling feel like when I'm experiencing that moment? It's actually yes. the same meditation I do every morning, by the way. I, uh, I visualize what the feeling would be to have everything I dream of around me to the point of what you're saying. What is the version of me like? that has all of that right mm -hmm. and then i try to empathize into that person's head and just dwell there for as long as possible before i start my days it primes you man it gets you on track to achieve your goals it, does. But it gets you thinking about the shit you care about not the shit that society tells you to care about yeah and specifically in capitalism you know the number one driver is of success everyone 
everyone thinks social media, what's reinforced is that you got to have some unlimited pile of money to be successful and to have all the things that you want. But the truth is, like you said, you have to know what happiness is for yourself. For me, the goal isn't to be a billionaire anymore. At one point I did, I I did want to become a billionaire, but now it's like, okay, what am I going to do with a billion dollars? Right. That's not, that's, if that's the only goal that I set, there's a lot of sacrifice that comes with that in other aspects of your life, right? If it happens through something that makes you happy in a vision, then that's great. But if the goal is to become a billionaire and that is the primary goal, then that can leave you depressed, like you said, because it's almost like you're setting a standard and having a laser focus on something that when you do eventually get money, you know that that's not the key to happiness, right? And that's why so many rich people have so many different different sets of problems. Like you can be, if your vision for yourself is to be a janitor, right? And you're content and it gives you everything else outside of that. And you're making thirty-five to $40,000 a year. Don't let society tell you you're not successful because you don't have the same goals as Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, you, what you both just said was unbelievably true. Um, one in the sense that if you are attaching goals and aspirations to material items, guess what? You might find yourself getting those things eventually. But at that point, you're just going to now set a, a higher, you know, more unrealistic material goal in the future. Let's, uh, I'm not as happy as I thought I was going to be with a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Let's see if five billion does it for me. And you're, you're end up spending your life chasing something. Um, but Partha, to your point, uh, the brain is a creature of habit. Uh, the brain is addicted on a constant basis to creating specific emotions. That's why people who are always unhappy will most likely always be unhappy because as much as they hate, as much as they say they hate the way they feel, really they're consistently doing things to make them feel that way. Just like a very positive person is pretty much always positive because they've created the routine and the habit of creating that specific combination of chemicals. And and what you said in, in your meditation, it's very similar to what I do as well. You're basically conditioning your brain to seek out that feeling to seek out that combination of chemicals the brain doesn't know the difference between a real experience and a memory that's why when we think about something traumatic from five years ago we feel very similar to the way we did when we first experienced the event so when you sit and meditate partha and you think about how you're feeling when you have everything you could possibly want when you when everything is going perfectly you have the right people in your life you've done the right things you've helped the right people and you you don't think about the things around you in that moment but you think about how you feel in that moment, you're preparing your brain to chase and find that feeling. That's going to bring you to the ultimate goal a hell of a lot faster than saying, I'm working my ass off so I have that car. Because guess what? Like I said, you might get the car, but it's not going to provide the satisfaction in that dopamine release that you were hoping for. I think this is a great bridge, bridge point, right? We've gotten a chance to get to know how you think. And I think a great bridge would be how have you applied your psychology or your your awareness of yourself into the things that you are actually doing with your life? You know, let's start with GoMix. Mm-hmm. How how does that fit into your worldview, and how does that satisfy your desire, your drive to be successful? 
I think the the common de denominator between my mindset and my my work with GoMix or really any of my businesses is creation. You know, prior to, to GoMix, I was creating the foundation of creating a new identity, creating this new mindset, creating new perspectives, because as I mentioned earlier, I was forced to. Uh, it, it was either that or I, I likely wouldn't be sitting here, just to be quite honest. Um, so it, as I made the transition from working for others into working for myself, I recognized an enormous increase in opportunity to create. Um, not to say that you don't have that opportunity when working for others, you, you certainly still do. Um, but for me, it gave me the opportunity to have all of the potential in my own hands. Uh, you know, I, I, I never really was very attracted to the idea that I would be forced into a box or, or given a, a metaphorical ceiling um, when working for other people. Uh, when, when you're working for a business that's yours, it can become anything you wish it to be, um, you know, obviously pending the approval of your partners. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that's the, the common denominator between the two is that uh, I wasn't doing a job or a list of task, tasks assigned to me by somebody else. I was creating the task list. I was creating the goals for the company, the goals for my department. And it just resonated very, very well with me and my mindset and who I am as a person. That's amazing. Yeah. So can you can you shed some light on the practices you have in your life that are helping you to grow on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I'll, I'll jump back to something V said a few moments ago that uh, I, I'm a little bit intense and that's that's absolutely true. I'm aware of it. Um, and I've learned over the years that it's honestly just something I have to be. Um, yeah. I have I have to be hard on myself. And sometimes I have to check that a little bit. Like, uh, for example, if my wife comes home and is venting to me about a relationship or something at work, my immediate response is typically to be as, as harsh as I am with myself, which I have to, you know, again, check myself and be like, whoa, hey, she's just venting. Like, you got to yeah, dial that, that I think back we all in. Have that. We have it <laughs> in all the relationships. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> yeah. She'll, she, you know, it's like, She'll be like, well, she's not being supportive. I'll be like, you should cut that friend out of your life. She's like, what? I'm like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Never mind. It's good. Um, but, uh, but I am a little bit intense. Get her out of here. Yeah. I am a little bit intense. I have to be hard on myself. So as I mentioned, I'm up in the morning before sunrise uh, to go for my walk. Uh, one, just to get the actual natural light in my eyes, helps wake me up, feel alert, gets the mind going. Um, but I live in Colorado. And it's February. So right now it's like in the single digits degree wise when I get up and walk. It's horrible. You know, like your, your tears are frozen on your eyelids. Your snot's frozen. It's not fun. There's nothing enjoyable about it. But I do it because it reinfers my confidence in myself that I'm capable of doing difficult shit. You know, and immediately after that walk, I come home and I take a cold shower. Same thing. You know, other people might take cold showers for other benefits, you know healthy, you know, immune system supportive, tightened the skin, whatever. Those are all great. I do it because it sucks. Like that's, that's just, that's, that's who I have to like. <laughs> that's what I like about it too. It's just like a nice little slap in the face. To your day. In my life. It's, the same, it's, it is. it's never fun. I've... Yeah, dude. It, yeah. I, I it's just, it's I've done it for years. It's never fun. Sometimes yeah. it's nice to start your day with just like a punch to the face. You know what I mean? 
Mm -hmm. Just like life it is, is. Just like, okay, this shit's for real. Let me let me get my head right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the truth. I mean, I you do say that yeah. and, and it's I, very intense. But you know, you are you if you're not intense, then life will life will manipulate you and 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 the world around you will manipulate you to be a version of yourself that you're not going to be happy with. If you're not intentional in understanding who you are and what it is that drives you and not worrying about, well, I don't care. I don't care if V says I'm too intense. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the reality of it is those practices like that came from a very vulnerable conversation. I had to be comfortable enough to look myself in the eye and say, Hey, you've been lazy. If something yeah. didn't need to be done right away, you were putting it off. You were a procrastinator. Um, you know, would you still get stuff done? Yes. You know, but were you doing it as quickly and efficiently as you could have? No. And, and that's an uncomfortable conversation. Nobody wants to be told they're not doing well enough, especially from themselves, the person who knows them the best. Right. So having that internal conversation and even reminding myself on a regular basis that, Hey, you were really lazy. You have to be hard on yourself to remind you not to be lazy. Um, that's not a fun conversation to have, but again, I think it ties very, very cohesively black into my perspective of stress. I have to put that stress on myself through that, um, personal dialogue in order to motivate me to do the difficult practices, which then in turn motivate me to work harder, which in turn motivate me to work longer if needed, um, which in turn motivate me to, uh, you know, maybe do the things you don't always want to do whether it's exercise or reading or, you know, slotting out time to, to spend with people. Maybe you're not that excited to spend time with whatever the case may be. We always tend to make excuses for ourselves. Um, you know, and I do believe that an excuse is always valid by the person giving it, but an excuse also prevents any progress. And I was guilty as all get out of making excuses through my early and mid twenties. And I just had to look at myself in the mirror one day and say, you're done with that. And in order to stop doing excuses, I need to just, do the hard stuff stay moving and keep keep doing stuff right like mm -hmm. i went through the same process and i'm still going through it because i am a i am a procrastinator not and it's because it's be, it's a habitual thing right if i don't feel that pressure that it has to get done mm -hmm. and and so i have to get it done for someone else or or i'm going to drop the ball if i don't feel that it's very difficult for me to get stuff done so i've kind of tricked myself into feeling that more consistently, but I'm still going through the process of, of getting to where you're at, which is never procrastinating, you know, or I know you probably still do it at times, but oh, yeah. to kind of have that structure in place where you're not allowed to do that, even though you know you can thrive in that environment. That's kind of what I've been guilty of is that I've always been successful when I felt that pressure, right? It's not that I've had a, a ton of failures it's like if i if i have that then it brings the best out of me that feeling and i think you're you're right though it it creates a lot of stress unnecessary stress on you and it doesn't allow you to be your best best version maybe the most time sensitive version of yourself but not the best version of yourself mm -hmm. well and the reality of it is we become experts at anything we practice the unfortunate part of that is we're often not aware of what we're practicing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for me, procrastination was one of those. It, yeah. It's not like I was born a procrastinator. 
No, I put one thing off at one point in my life. I still got it done, got the outcome that I was aiming to have. So guess what? The next time a task got put on my plate, I said, well, I don't need to do this right now because I've proven to myself in the past that I can do it at the last second. Um, so it's, it's, I think there's a huge benefit in, again, being very honest with yourself and being yeah. aware of what you're practicing, specifically the negative habits. Um, yeah. I think, I think we often kind of overlook those and say, you know, that's who I am. That's my identity. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> you're not, you're not, you weren't born you're just really good at it like that is part of the procrastination right saying yeah. that's just who i am right you know it's interesting i noticed that with people like work habits right people who work a lot and who take a lot of pride in working a lot usually have terrible work habits they usually take a <laughs> one-hour task and make it last eight hours they pull an all-nighter and they come to you and they're like i've worked 20 hours to deliver this and you're like well it feels like you could have done it in two and then done a lot of other stuff in the meantime, right? And you see people struggle with this, but take so much pride. It's the identity stuff you're talking about. Build their identity off of the amount of work they put in, not understanding that that's not correlated to success. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. And, and I think people confuse um, busyness with productivity. You know, you, you catch up with a friend for a beer at, you know, 6 p.m. It's Saturday. Oh, man, it was busy. But like there's like almost a sense of pride in how they're saying that. Yeah. Like always like, oh, I didn't stop moving all day. I didn't eat because I was so busy. It's like, yeah. have, you, have you ever asked that person like, cool, how much did you actually accomplish? Like what yeah. got done today? Were you just busy? Or were you productive? And I think even, again, just having that honest conversation itself at the end of a day, like where you, you have that day where you fall into the couch and you exhale like, oh, today's a busy day. But if you're open enough to say, all right, was I busy or was I productive? Like how many things did I actually check off my to-do list today? Yeah. And I, I think that can create a, either a recognition or at the very least a habit towards a more positive outcome. Um, because I think there is a little bit of a, an obsession with, with almost bragging about how busy we are. You know, yeah. we, we post that stuff on social media, on, yeah. which is just weird to me. And how much do you think that this this connection that people put that naturally happens between time and productivity, right? Everyone says that the saying, I'm working a nine to five. So you're working an eight hour day. How much of that do you think is a is part of the problem? The connection between the time spent versus productivity and the output that you're creating? Because I feel like if 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 I have an employee and they're getting what I need them to get done in two hours, then they can go home, right? Like <laughs> versus my expectations for them. And if, if it's meeting my expectations of what I want them to do every day, but it seems like I see in, in the employee mindset, a lot of people who work that nine to five cycle, they come in at nine and they're thinking about their lunch break at 12 or their 15 minute break at, at two fifteen, And that's what they're thinking about versus because it's, it's in time. Versus this is the, like you said, to-do list. These are things that I need to get done at work today. And for me, I think that that is part of the problem as well. You know, you, you bring up a good point. And I, I think people do attach a little bit too much meaning to that nine to five expression. Um, I mean, I know plenty of entrepreneurs even who, you know, 5 p.m. hits and they're like, yeah, I'm done for the day. Um, and I think that's something else that's very appealing to me about entrepreneurship is, there's no clock in clock out 
Um, it's, it's when does something need to be done and how are we going to accomplish it? Uh, additionally, again, as I've said before, I, I love reading about neurology and things like that. Uh, I've recently learned that our focus actually fluctuates in cycles very similarly to that of our sleep cycle. So sleep, we actually run in repetitive 90 minute cycles. So we literally are in a very light phase of sleep. And then as we get closer to that 90 minute window, we're typically falling into a deeper and deeper sleep. Once that 90 minute cycle hits, we actually wake up a little bit. We might not actually physically be conscious, but we are in a lighter sleep. And then again, we slowly get back into a deeper sleep over the next 90 minutes. Focus is the exact same thing. Um, which brings up a whole list of problems in terms of like traditional schooling, nine to five, yeah. you name it. But being able to understand that your focus operates in a very similar way. And, and we've all recognized this. I mean, when you open a book, your first couple of pages, you're kind of like, I need to reread because I wasn't really paying attention. My mind is elsewhere. I'm not able to get comfortable in my seat. But then once you've been reading for like 30, 40 minutes, you are completely disconnected from the outside world. And you're just vividly hallucinating about what you're reading at this point. That's, that's focus. And then what, guess what happens? You hit a point where that focus kind of starts to decline. So I, I think knowing that it helps me be more productive throughout my day because it helps me understand that I'm not supposed to be just innately focused for nine hours straight. That's not the way our brains work. So when I feel that kind of fidgety out of focus feeling, that's when I'll tell myself like, okay, I'm, I'm starting a new cycle. This is a good time to get up, grab some water, maybe crush some food real quick. Uh, maybe call someone and just have a quick five minute chat about their day, touch base with someone else. Okay. Now get back, restart that 90 minute cycle again. Um, but additionally, I, I think the biggest thing for me, honestly, is that you, you can follow inspiration a little bit closer um, yeah. you know, if, if my mind is going at nine 30, 10 PM at night, and I'm just all of a sudden very motivated to, you know, pursue an idea with go mix and, and work on a project we've had or, mm -hmm. or, you know, write for something for an episode with failing forward. then I have the ability to just do that at that time because I've removed the nine to five perspective from my life. It's just, I'm doing work when it needs to be done, but I'm also doing work just genuinely when I want to work. You know, and I think, I think people disconnect from that, from a traditional nine to five. It's like, it's after five. I'm not responding to your email. Like I'm not, I'm not dedicating time to this. This is my time. When in reality, like your time can be very thing. fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big thing I struggle with personally, actually, is I've, I've been really emphasizing this exactly what you're talking about, trying to make my work more of a lifestyle for myself because yes. you know, I do genuinely enjoy my job. But at the same time, I have a tendency to overwork myself because I enjoy it. And not taking mm -hmm. those breaks during the day means I burn myself out if I do it too many days in a row. So it can go the other way as well. It's, it's There's one side of it where it's like you put all your work in these hours and you're not productive. Then the other side of it is like, you know, you overwork yourself and you're not productive. And it's like finding that balance is a very challenging thing. And ultimately, I think it comes from a de-emphasis of work in the lifestyle. Like we we glorify professionalism and professional success to such an extent that it overshadows physical health. It overshadows mental health. It overshadows our family, our friendships, our relationships, and our spiritual growth, all of which I believe should have equal priority to work. And that, I, I mean, for me personally, I'll just share it. Uh, that's the struggle is how yeah. can I you re reduce the significance of work in my life so that I have a healthier relationship with it? Have you had? Yeah. Go ahead. 
I was going to say, have you had that, Jared, as you, as you've gone through your journey? Have you, have you struggled with that kind of thing? Uh, to some degree, yes. Um, cause same thing, you know, especially, you know, in those years right after college, just like everybody else, I was attaching a significance to how busy I was. I was attaching uh, fulfillment even to success specifically at work, you know, whether it was a raise or the success of a business that I was associated with. And those things are great things. We shouldn't discredit those achievements and tied to work. But when we do spend almost an obnoxious amount of time in, in anything, not, not just work, we are depriving ourselves from something else. Um, that's, I mean, that's just the reality. We all only have 24 hours in the day. We all only have so much time on this earth. If, if you really feel like you're missing out on another area of life, then chances are that thought isn't going to go away. And that is going to catch up to a point where you have a dramatic shift where you, you know, end up leaving a job or whatever the case may be. Um, but I, I do agree with you. I think, I think there is a better place for us. Um, and in fact, I even have a little bit of a prediction that we're moving towards this right now because of this huge shift towards working remotely. Um, I think like the typical corporation or traditional corporation is kind of falling right now because a, a corporation is a, a community um, and employees don't really have that anymore. Some do in some effect, but for the most part, the, the community aspect of an organization is gone. And I think people are figuring out now that a more important emphasis is on your individual abilities or your area of expertise and not how those abilities or expertise fit into a corporation. Um, I know I'm sidetracking a little bit, but I think hopefully if my prediction is correct, we'll actually evolve into something that is a little bit better of a healthier work-life balance to the point where you can spend time in your day doing those things you're very good at and serving a purpose for somebody else in the process and still have time to spend time with your spouse, go golfing, just get outside, exercise, go out to eat, whatever the case may be. Yeah. We're going to have to take this. I, I know we're coming to the end of our time a little bit. We're going to have to take this conversation uh, probably to a part three at some point, because I think we got to go down the future of work and the future of human life at some point. Yeah. I would love to. Before we, before we get get you out of here on some fun stuff, the my takeaway from our conversation, I know we didn't really ask you a bunch of questions about the Failing Forward podcast, but I think through this conversation, people can understand how authentic uh, that brand and that name is to how you live your life and how you've kind of gotten to where you're at by constantly failing forward, setting those those bars or those lines. And, and obviously that's, that's, what makes your your podcast authentic and, and true to you is that it is a representative of who you are. Um, I just wanted to to say that since we didn't get a bunch of time to talk on about your podcast, now we want to get you out of here on some some fun questions that kind of give people a glimpse into who inspires you, right? Um, sure. And, and those two things, I'll ask the first one. Part that we'll ask the second one. First question is your your top five musicians. I'm, I'm probably the worst person to ask this question because I'm one of those weirdos that don't listen that I don't listen to music in my car or when I exercise. Um, I'm, I'm just weird in that. Uh, top, top I, uh, five. we can, we can, we can, we can freestyle. We can check I, I still, the top five travel destinations. Maybe. <laughs> no, no. I'll, I'll still give you guys an but, answer. I'll, I'll do my okay. best. Um, 
I, I am, again, to further it, I'm a weirdo, uh, love Mozart. Um, I listen to All classical right. music, like during the day while I work, I listen to it while I read. Um, my wife has caught me listening to it while I work out. I don't know why, it's just right. very comforting. Um, but Mozart's great. Um, on top of that, uh, I am from a small town in Colorado, so I do have a little bit of a countryside. I do put on boots every now and then. Um, so I'm a big, uh, you know, big, just country fan as a whole. I'd say my top artists there are probably, man, I like the ones. old guys. I like Garth. Um, I like, uh, I like Toby Keith. Uh, it's good. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a kind of a, a little bit of a country boy. I've gotten connected a little bit to country post, post 30, you know, I've, I've it's, really we don't get to experience it now, but country is the greatest music to listen to live like sunset warm out beer in hand it's the best music to see yeah. that's that's the thing though you got to get the environment right with country you, you got to be in a field yeah. somewhere you got to have cold <laughs> beers and there should be some sort of fire going on some sort of fire right. pit situation. your shoes buddy yeah some yeah. factors be there yeah you have to be in a flannel too but if you get the circumstance right it's a vibe yeah. it is and if and if you're part of it now, we can't be in that environment somewhere in the deep south. Hey, <laughs> you can't. You can't really. I'll, that's true. But now that I'm in California, you know, definitely I definitely listen to a lot more country than I ever have. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's great. So what got- about uh, your top five athletes? Ooh, this is a, this is a better question. Um, born and raised John Elway fan. I uh, actually have Ooh. the same birthday as John. Um, nice. So, you know, he and I are like this. Uh, I'm a Browns fan, so I, all right, that one hurts me hey, a little bit. <laughs> you, you know, you guys had a better year this year. You guys had a much better year. Um, but uh, aside from that, um, I would definitely say it's going to be probably all Broncos players, guys. I'm sorry. Um, Terrell right? Davis, I, I woke up, or excuse me, I grew up, um, you know, watching him and John just run the league back in the early and late nineties. Uh, so Terrell Davis is up there as well. Uh, love me some Peyton Manning. Uh, I love that he moved here permanently after his time here with us. Uh, the sheriff is definitely on that list. Um, and then I'm trying to think of more, more like current guys. Uh, I do really like Drew Locke. I'm going to say it. I know there's some, uh, some controversy right now. And if he's the guy of the future, I like his moxie. I think he and I could have a good time together. I think we'd have, I think we'd have fun hanging out. Um, so I'm gonna throw him on that list as well. And then, uh, my last one, I'm going to say, man, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big Chubb fan, Bradley or Brandon. I'm going to put them in together. They're just good guys, great athletes, amazing individuals, and both probably like the most confident speakers I've ever experienced. Anything that comes out of their mouth, I'm just like, yes, hundred (laughs) percent. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jared, for joining us. Uh, this is Jared Wunderlich from the Failing Forward podcast. Um, for all of our listeners, you know, the these types of people that we bring on, it's all about this concept of head in the clouds. So how, what can you do with your mind? What can you do with how you see the world to really just achieve your dreams and you know become the person you want to be? So I think this was a you know a very fruitful interview because there were a lot of gems dropped. Well, thank you guys so much. It was an absolute pleasure to be here with you both today. Um, Partha, if I can add, I, I do just want to extend a personal thank you to you uh, for not only being on our show and failing forward, but just your your dedication and willingness to help us grow and, and help us 
continue to develop as a show is just so, so appreciated. And uh, I hope you know how much I appreciate our new friendship. Uh, and right. it's been a you, bro. this process as well. It's been great to speak with you today and get to know you better. Thank you both guys. Definitely. Definitely. Take care. You Stay too guys. Appreciate you. I'll do my best. Show the pilot boy some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com. You're listening to the pilot boys podcast. Hey guys, this is Partha. You might know me as a pilot boy, but I'm also the CEO of Lasso. Lasso is a high-performance lifestyle brand that makes a Lasso Sock 2.0, the most functional sock ever to help you stay moving on any adventure you choose. Lasso uses patented compression technology with scientifically proven ankle stability to support key ligaments and tendons as well as moisture-wicking materials and built-in strike padding, so every single step is stable, soft, and cool. Lasso socks are also used to treat foot and ankle conditions like plantar fasciitis, Achilles pain, ankle soreness, circulation issues, and more. Check them out at lassogear.com or at lassogear on social media. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. And we're back with news and notes after a great episode with, uh, with Jared. You ready to get to it? I think our minds are opened up a little bit now, Partha. Yeah, dude, that got me pretty warmed up. A lot of, lot of thoughts racing through my mind right now. Yeah, it's definitely an in very intense and intentional guy um i need i need him to like be around so he can just motivate me every morning get the fuck up <laughs> honestly dude <laughs> we all we all need somebody like that around yeah yeah, yeah it's great so let's let's get into it you know let's let, there's a lot going on um you know we're we're tuesday so the latest thing was uh tesla moving moving markets and moving the world through their uh disclosure yesterday that they uh they've invested 1.5 billion dollars into bitcoin um there's a lot of layers here to this story right let's start with um elon musk's issues that he's had with the sec um and kind of his consistent desire to kind of challenge them and not be scared of the government. Everyone's scared of the SEC, but it seems like Elon isn't. Um, basically, he started talking about Bitcoin. What what was it about three or four months ago? Where he changed, he put hashtag uh, Bitcoin on his his Twitter profile and has consistently yeah. been talking about Bitcoin and then trying to you know also scale up the price of Dogecoin. And yesterday, we really saw the power of it when it was finally disclosed i mean that 1.5 billion dollar investment is probably worth significantly more than 1.5 billion today um let's start there with just the process of us getting to this point um and what what your thoughts are your general thoughts are on this whole kind of phenomenon twitter wall street bets you know elon musk pushing markets with singular voices through social media oh yeah well i, I mean you know, I'm not as concerned with the markets, but as you know, I'm a huge crypto fan. I'm, yeah. I'm a big believer in the technology. I think what happened after the uh, recession in 2007 through 2009, 
is the um, the federal government printed so much capital, bailed out corporate execs who didn't deserve to be bailed out, and essentially did, you know, a very on the surface level corrupt thing that they masked as this is the only way to fix the economy. And people started to ask the question, well, is this the only way we can do commerce? Is it the only way we can do trade? Is by relying on the US federal government. And they lost a lot of trust those days. And I think it started to build over time where now people are more comfortable, you know, leaning on an asset that's built on code where there's no overseer, there's no entity that's that can be prone to corruption that controls, you know, that form of currency. And so Bitcoin, you know, whether it has use or it doesn't have use in terms of actual transactions, it has use as a, a store of value, right? Because there's no there's no party that has control over it. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So when I look at like corporations putting their money into Bitcoin, that's almost inevitable. You know, I think I think it's going to end up becoming the global reserve currency in the next 10 years or so. But we're all going through this process of better understanding just how currencies work, who we trust, who we don't trust, how we want to do trade, how we want to save our money, what do we want to save it in, how much do we want to invest in stocks, how much do we want to invest in crypto. That whole thing is it's like a new balance people are going through. But I think it's inevitable that every single person has crypto of some sort in their pocket. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting uh, take. The thing that I, you know, at first I didn't wrap my head around crypto. You know, basically the way I looked at it was not necessarily from a FOMO standpoint, but to learn, I felt like I had to invest in it. Um, so a couple of years back, I I looked at it and I calculated what a, a weekend in Vegas would cost me and said, this is what I'm going to put into crypto because it is, at that point was gambling to me because I didn't understand it well enough to say, okay, let me put a, a, a sizable amount of money into it. Lo and behold, I'm sitting today in that weekend in Vegas is worth about six weekends in Vegas now. Um, so I'm happy about that. But I think the unique thing, like you said, is, is a store of value. I don't know if it will ever have use as currency, but I look at, at crypto as kind of digital silver or digital gold in the sense that whoever developed this system, specifically with Bitcoin, really, really understood the idea of the scarcity principle and how to create that digitally. And that's what's amazing specifically about Bitcoin. Um, what what my concern is, is how does something become the standard? Currency trading is something that's very tricky and very challenging. Um, that's not even something that I I particularly think is is an investment for anyone who isn't kind of a speculative investor. Um, now, with that said, and also the regulation aspect of this thing, when that comes down, um, because the U.S. government um, is not going to just sit by and governments are not going to just sit by and let this thing take over. There's a lot that they can do from a regulation standpoint to potentially stifle the growth of this thing. So I'm only saying that to those who are seeing this very similar to GameStop to exercise caution in their approach and not just say, you know, there's a lot to be excited about, like you mentioned, Partha, but there's a lot of questions that still remain. And I do encourage you, everyone, to kind of take some stock in a coin, if it's not Bitcoin, if it's Ethereum, study it, understand it, 
understand that the market may be headed in this direction. Um, and the only way you can do that is by by owning a little bit, I think. You can't be on the sidelines here. Now, how much that is, that's up to you. It can be up as little as $100, $50, and up to, you know, I think a healthy way that someone said it is they're putting about 1% of, of their investment capital into cryptocurrency because there are just so many questions still, right, Partha? But it is I'm, a fascinating I'm, thing. Yeah, I'm a higher take. I'm, I'm closer to 10 20%. But uh, no, actually... They're 30% now. But I will say this. Don't buy crypto when it's at its height. But use a what what some would call like a rolling average method. So if you want to put $500 in, put in $100 each month for five months. That's the best way to enter any stock. That's the best way to enter any market from a trading perspective because you're averaging out your cost over the fluctuations high and low that the market's going to take. If you put in 500 today and it drops to 20k in a week, you're going to be pissed. You're going to lose half your money. If you put in $100 and then you put in $100 at 20 next month, then all of a sudden, you know, your 200 went to 150, sure, but that's kind of the price of doing business. So you kind of are taking a dollar cost averaging approach. Yeah. I think uh, that's the easiest way to enter any market or enter any stock, and I think when it comes to crypto, you know, you, you got to understand the difference between them. If you're not an expert, I, I, I like Bitcoin. I like to sit in Bitcoin because I think it's, an, it's more of an index of the crypto market. And it's the one that people know. So it has the greatest uh, ability to grow in, in value in my eyes. But in the long term, I think that many of the smaller coins will take over. And that's because the, the market has gotten very robust in cryptocurrency. So just to kind of explain this from a 10,000 foot view, you know, if I have to conduct a transaction with somebody else, say I'm buying a house, I have to put my money in escrow. And cryptocurrency basically provides a way to do that that's cheaper. The bank doesn't take a percentage and I don't have to use a third party to complete the transaction. Everything's digitally verified and authenticated by the algorithms in place and it can't be hacked. So it's fully secure. So you lose wire fraud. You know what I mean? You lose like a lot of the things that make international trade, which is, you know, a big use case. Very, very difficult. I think that that's a, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal point. But my pushback to that would be this, which is there is no stable value in any of these coins up until this point, right? You don't know hour to hour, minute to minute, crypto and Bitcoin, they trade 24 hours a day. You don't, there isn't a stable, a stability there to say, okay, I'm doing this transaction. I'm sending you one Bitcoin for a $40,000, $45,000. Let's say you're buying a Tesla, right? You say, I'm sending you a Bitcoin. That Bitcoin gets to that person the next morning. And now that Bitcoin is only worth $35,000. Oh, th how that's, you not, that's not how you should use it. So I, I think that's an important point to make. Using a cryptocurrency as a currency is, you know, what a lot of them are designed for. It's not what Bitcoin is designed for. It may be what some people say, but it's not there yet. Transaction times aren't fast enough. It, they use a pretty significant amount of computing power still. It's getting a lot faster and it potentially can be, you know, use um, from a currency standpoint to actually buy and sell things. But my, my, my point is more when you look at specific other cryptocurrencies. For example, I'll talk about 
the browser that I use. I use a web browser called Brave. And yeah. Brave has its own cryptocurrency, its own tokens. And what they do is whenever I sh- choose to share my data with Facebook or Google or Twitter or whatever I go on to on my computer, whenever I share my data, they give me um, cr- a cryptocurrency. But they run scripts that block every single data gathering algorithm that Facebook has, that Twitter has, that Instagram has. So I can browse completely anonymous. I won't get targeted by ads. And if I want that, I turn it on and I get compensated for it. The beautiful part of that is I'm getting compensated for my data. I'm continuing to build some measure of wealth. And the value of those tokens that I'm getting from browsing, may, it may go up over time, it may not, but it's provided me a way to monetize a piece of data that previously was not monetizable and it inserted itself into you know, the social media ecosystem in a way where it took away the power of one corporation or one person to decide how much my data is worth. And it made it more of a meritocracy or really a, a um, you know, cap, more capitalistic in my eyes. You know yeah. I mean? in, in terms of like the, the logic and the, the fervor around crypto, I completely understand it. Um, and I think that it does have potential. You know, there's, we're very early in this game, right? And I think if you do look at these things as currency, there is speculation. We don't know if Bitcoin is even going to be the standard bearing cryptocurrency five years from now, right? Somebody could come up with something that is much more efficient, much more transactionally suitable and that could be the token right i don't know how many tokens there are that's that's the thing that i have trouble wrapping my head around even with currency exchange right i know that the u.s dollar is always going to be the currency as long as the u.s economy dominates consumption so this is this is where i would i would contest yes i feel that in 2040 bitcoin has a greater chance of being the global reserve currency than the u.s dollar because of the practices of the Federal Reserve and our government in terms of how much money they print. I think there's a lot of practice in international finance and domestic finance that's leading to currency volatility. Plus, we talked about the democratization of the stock market earlier, getting a lot of people into things like Forex trading, which is becoming incredibly hot. It has been hot for years in on internet culture. A lot of people buying and selling currencies destabilizes currencies. That's going to only increase over time. The same way stocks are getting destabilized on the market due to things like Robinhood and Wall Street bets. That's going to happen more and more. And it's going to be, there will not be a discernible difference between putting your money in a dollar versus putting your money in Bitcoin from a volatility perspective. The, yeah. The, the only reason that I, I can test that is not because it should be so or it could be so. It's because of how regulation works and how much power the U.S. government has, and I'm not just speaking from a currency perspective because it comes if it comes down to the U.S. dollar no longer being the standard bearer, there are going to be some heads that potentially could roll um, because it, yeah. is, it is such a huge deal, right? And then also the fact that they dictate the rules of trade into the U.S., the U.S. government is going to dictate. So, until they figure out the regulation aspect of these cryptos, which is from everything that I've read, not even close to happening, right? Corporations are starting to accept it. 
but governments, and you've heard Janet Yellen's comments, they are not trying to acknowledge this movement in any real way and seem like they are going to die trying. And if, if it does become a digital currency, it will be some form of the U.S. dollar as a crypto. I know China is 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 creating a a token um, that their citizens soon will be able to use as currency. I agree. I agree with you in the sense that the idea of even dollars and currency doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Yeah. But the truth of why so much currency exists is because of how large the black market is. A hundred percent. How many transactions are happening on that? And it's still remains the best way to conduct uh, conduct transactions um, with currency. And, bit, you know, Bitcoin's been running sports betting. It's been running the dark yes. web transactions for a long time. So that's, that's, thing, yep. that's not anything new. But where, where, you know, I think you're right. I think those people will, you know, go to the grave protesting and denying that cryptocurrency has a chance of being impactful because their whole worldview is built on, you know, what they've seen, right? The existing yep. power structure, the existing impact of the U.S. government on the world, etc. But I definitely feel that we're in an era where the old powers that be, the old experts have really no say, no impact and no valid opinion on where things are going. The reason I say that is because one of the biggest advocates of, of uh, crypto or one of the biggest haters of cryptocurrency in the internet is Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman, who stated the most ignorant opinion I've ever heard. Shout out to my friend Felix for showing me this. Um, that he feels the internet, he, he said this in the 90s, the internet would have no more impact on commerce than the fax machine. And obviously, you know, he was dead wrong, but he continues to be a vocal skeptic to this day. And I think there's a, a fatal flaw in asking anybody who is an expert in the traditional finance system about cryptocurrency, because it's not in their incentive to want cryptocurrency to succeed. And if they're able to give you an unbiased opinion, that's cool, but that's very, very rare. Most of these people will do anything it takes to preserve their worldview in terms of the opinions that they get. So, you know, just because you're an expert at one thing doesn't mean you're an expert at another thing. Yeah. And I think these these experts aren't the concerns. It's the actual government, right? The yeah. U.S. government wields a tremendous amount of power. And if they never accept, it may not be, like I said, I do think this idea of a digital a digital non-currency system is correct. But where I'm kind of concerned and why I'm not putting more in to the crypto is because of that kind of concern and fear that they're not going to let Bitcoin become the standard currency. And they have they have a, a great degree of power on how transactions occur specifically in America, where most of the, the if if transactions aren't that's why we continue to be a leader more than anything we lead the world in consumption and we lead the world in in actual foreign trade so i i agree to an extent in in terms of the now but i also feel that china is far more developed their infrastructure is smarter and better built for the next 150 years i i foresee china overtaking the us very very rapidly probably in the next 20 to 50 years from a global power standpoint in the interim, I anticipate you know a rapid change of control of how commerce works because of the cryptocurrencies. But I find it very, very unlikely the U.S. government will continue to have any you know real sense of of global 
control on commerce beyond the next 20 years. I just don't see it. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a very interesting take. You know, we do understand that China, um, does exercise a great degree of power and control, you know, and they own a lot of our debt. Um, but But China's culturally forward too. So the, the thing that's different is that in the U S things are built for now. They're built for the glory of the individual who builds them in China. They build them for their grandkids. So the long-term thinking of their culture is why they are so successful as a country. They have military bases pre-planned hundreds of years out across the entire continent of Africa, across the Middle East, across a lot of the South China Sea. They have um, shipping docks that they set up all through. They set up a bunch in Pakistan, a lot of African countries, and they lend these shipping docks. They signed 40 to 120-year leases with um, all of these governments and say, this is a shipping dock for you. But when that lease comes up, it'll turn into whatever China wants it to be. And these are all strategic locations for military bases. Not only that, but they've built railroad all the way through China, all the way through a lot of Asia. I mean, the, the moves on a geopolitical scale that China has been making over the last you know, 50 years have been largely overlooked, but they provided a framework for them to completely take over the world if they want to. And I think it's a very, you know, glossed over fact that people don't want to recognize or realize is true. But, you know, fundamentally, like the the numbers show it too. Six of the top 10 construction companies in the world are Chinese because the Chinese government gives the contracts for all these construction projects for these bases to the Chinese companies. And that's actually stipulated into the deals they sign with foreign governments to, to build on that land. Hey, you have to use one of our companies, but you can have the land for 120 years. Yeah, I mean, uh, to to say that the the U.S. is even remotely close from an infra, you know, we, I've been to China and I've seen what they have there. Right in terms of development, it's not even close. Right, um, they are forward thinking, and that is, you know, I hate to even try to put these two together. That is one of the advantages of of having a communist system, right? Where the power structure remains in place, not for two years, two to four years, but they're able to do a lot of this long-term planning because there's stability, you know, and some of the citizens might disagree with the stability aspect of it in terms of whether it's a dictatorship or whether it's a a, a true communist uh, system, right? Or socialist system. Um, but I think that the, the challenges that China runs into is because it is a communist system, part of the reason that the top six construction companies exist in China is because they constantly need to build stuff to keep people employed. And you will see this if you go over there. There are towns and cities that look like Dubai that are completely empty just because of the constant need and the population issues that they face. They recently let go of the one-child rule now people are able to have two children so the population control issue is is a big issue that you have like what the united states has going for it is that it doesn't need to look externally for a lot of things like a lot of other countries do right we have all all the resources that we need here what the issue that we face is like you said and i'm not disagreeing with you i'm actually agreeing with you is that we better get our shit together because we're way behind. We're not even thinking 
six months from now, we're thinking what's right in front of our face. Our infrastructure is crumbling in our country. Our bridges, our roads, our, our, our train systems are all outdated. If we don't start making an investment in those things soon, you are right. You know, we are going to be overtaken by China or someone else. Um, because if you're not rapidly moving with the changes in the world and you're constantly just holding on to your power structure, you are going to lose. And I feel like this is the story that's been repeated over time from the Roman Empire. You know, every great empire falls. Why? Because they get fat, and greedy and lazy, you know? Yep. And, and that kind of, you know, nicely ties. First of all, I just want to say team red, white and blue all day, baby. That's what we do. But, yes. um, you know, if you ever have the question in your head, what would I do if the dollar stopped being valuable, right? Or if currency in general stopped being valuable or if it got really volatile or if we had, to, you know, what happened with Italy, for example, rapid inflation, Zimbabwe has had crazy inflation. Yep. Obviously, the U.S. is a little China's different China's facing size. that. China and they fake their numbers. They're lying. Yeah, they're yeah. lying to us. Oh, so, so there's a lot of these types of currency problems that happen in countries. And if you want to protect yourself from it, Bitcoin and crypto is one really good option. Put a very small portion of your portfolio into as a hedge in case you know the other 95% goes away, you'd still have something. So that's, that's another way to look at cryptocurrency in general. Um, that being said... A lot of great resources online. Do your research. Uh, don't listen to FOMO. Don't listen to that fear in your head that says, if you don't buy it now, you'll miss out. Um, be smart, be cautious, be moderate, and you'll be fine. Yeah, there are many options out here. And, uh, and I will say this. If you have that fear, gold is still a good investment. It's just a lot harder to store some 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 bars of gold in your, in oh, yeah. your house than to have a digital wallet with some crypto in it, right? Oh, so. yeah. Um, now let's move to the man whose hand is made of gold, Tom Brady, winning his seventh Super Bowl, setting a record. Yeah, um, it's it's amazing, man. Like, and you know, there's a great number of Tom Brady haters. A lot of them located in and around the state of Ohio. Um, and you know, I got into a little bit of an argument after the game, um, and I hated doing this, taking Tom Brady's side. <laughs> um, like, well, it wasn't Tom Brady. It was the defense. If you look at his Super Bowls, it's always the rest of the team um, that does it. Tampa Bay has all these stars. And look, they got Antonio Brown. They got Mike Evans. They've got Rob Gronkowski. Of course, he's going to win. By the way, Gronkowski, Leonard Fournette, and AB all recruited by Brady. Yes. And so my, my pushback to that was it isn't about his talent. It's about the culture that he instills and it's extension of Bill Belichick, right? Is the accountability you feel when you're, you're faced with dealing with someone who's as great as he is and who has the resume to prove it, but also the personality he has and the awareness he has, right? Like Antonio Brown, no team in the NFL, despite his talent, wanted to sign him. Tom Brady took him into his, his house and said, this guy, I'm going to, I'm taking personal accountability to keep this guy in line. We didn't hear any issues from not AD. a word. Same thing with Leonard Fournette. He was a, he is a legitimate, was a legitimate cancer in the Jacksonville locker room. Part of it probably had to do with the fact that they weren't winning consistently, 
but nobody wanted to sign him either. This is a top five draft pick. Goes to Brady. He's yep. back. Same thing with Gronk. Gronk was retired. He had back problems. Tom Brady got him with the TB12 method for the last two years, and now Tom Brady's, I mean, Rob Gronkowski is saying he feels better than he's ever felt before. And, you know, we keep talking about this. on. By the way, show. he looked bigger than he's ever looked yeah. as well. Holy shit. It was like he spent the whole season getting ready for the Super Bowl. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but this is what you and I talk about all the time. Culture, 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 and understanding what that means to put an organization and develop a winning culture. That's what allowed them to work as hard as they did to develop the perfect game plan. That's what Tom Brady does and why he needs to just be acknowledged for what he is, the GOAT, you know, and is what it is. 100%. If you're saying you're you're hating. (laughs) Yeah. If you're hating at all, you know, what are you even doing, man? Like this guy has more Super Bowls than any NFL team himself. That's, That's enough for me. Yep. Yep. Let's let's just acknowledge his greatness and study it and appreciate yeah. it. Stop yeah. it. Learn from it. Yep. So also a piece of greatness. Um the headline was that the weekend spent seven million dollars of his own money to perform at the Super Bowl, because uh, the budget wasn't big enough to do what he wanted to do. First of all, wow, he crushed that performance. Um he I I've never like seen the weekend perform so close up. And my takeaway is like he seems like a relatively corny dude. Like yeah. <laughs> he's he's super dope in his music, and I thought he would be a lot edgier of a person, but he's like very family friendly in his energy. Yeah, I think you know, I was concerned of going into the halftime show about like I like his music. I was like, how is he going to be as a performer for those same reasons? Because I didn't think he really had much of a personality. But what was amazing, I thought this was one of the best halftime performances I've seen in a long time is I think he's very self-aware of who he is. And that's what led him to create the show that he created with as much activity and energy that wasn't centered on him in the show, right? And that allowed him just to perform and you to be visually uh, the visual appeal standing out and his music is so good and the thing is his voice like i don't think that that was a playback i think that was him singing yeah that was for sure yeah and that is an amazing gift his songwriting his ability to understand pop music is unbelievable and undeniable but like you said he doesn't have the ability to dance like usher you know what i mean yeah so he has that one move he popped three, four times. Yep. And you know, I I respect it. That's he knows who I he dance. is. Yeah. He knows who he is and he built a show. That's why he spent seven million dollars, right? And let's dig in seven million performers. Yeah. <laughs> 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 cover. But the thing is, people are like, why would you waste that much money? And I think it's important for us on this show to talk about what it means to have a performance in front of a hundred million people. They, I saw some numbers with Jennifer Lopez, both from a social media standpoint and in the streaming world, right? Social media, they said, after the Super Bowl, um, J-Lo gained two, and this is someone who's already global, re- globally recognized, gained two and, a half new, two and a half million new followers, right? And the, and the streaming numbers go up exponentially. So if you have a great performance and the world is literally watching, you know, imagine being able to perform in a hundred. What is the what is the price 
you're willing to pay. The Super Bowl never pays its performers. They pay the production costs. But this is the reason these artists do it. And I think The weekend also was aware enough to know he's about to do a gigantic tour coming up. And some of the questions that he knows that people think he's corny. He knows he's not the greatest performer. But he put on a show that now is going to make people buy tickets for that world tour that he has coming up in 2022. Plus, this exposes him to the Suburban demo in a way that he probably hasn't had exposure in a meaningful way, especially yeah. to a slightly older demographic that tends to watch the Super Bowl. So from from his standpoint, it's just like, this is his move to compete with Drake. Yeah, he needs to level up. Yeah. You know, and to be a pop star, I mean, I think he's looking at it like Drake, like Usher, like... You want, like Jackson, Michael like Michael Jackson, Jackson yeah. Yep. Which he had the vibes like crazy in the show that that's not on accident. Yep. Yep. And there are ways to, to, to overcome the fact that you're not particular, you don't have a lot of rhythm or you can't dance. He spent the money to make sure that everyone else was able to do it. Yeah. And that's all you <laughs> they need. They all were wearing man. masks too. All you need are crazy camera angles, really stimulating visuals and a great song. Yep. Yeah. And so good. Got, his music is so unbelievable. So that, that covers a lot of, a lot of the things that he he's lacking. Yeah, great performance, super engaging to watch. I don't think anyone at our, at our spot said a word the whole time he was no, performing. No, you had to watch it. Yeah. You had to watch it. Captivating. Yes. Perfect word. Yeah. So we got anything else? Anything else we got to we got to talk about today? I mean, we could talk about the Apple car real briefly. Yeah, let's 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 talk about that. Um surprising to me here is the news is that Hyundai and, and Kia kind of dropped out of the race. And I'm, I tend to believe that's because they didn't want to subject themselves to the intense and rigorous standards that Apple sets for its products. Um, when you look at, you know, I thought it was a surprising move, right? Like Kia and Hyundai, their kind of niche is in creating really reliable and basic cars right? That's for the most part. They're really reliable. They have some high-end cars and they're trying to get into it, but that's not kind of their niche and their base. So when you look at them kind of being the partner for an Apple car, I thought that was a little odd. Um, but where, where do you see this going? Like I do see, obviously, it makes sense from a technology standpoint. We're all slaves to Apple products already to have a car that is com completely um synergistic with that ecosystem seems like a smart move um and it seems like they could be the company that could really compete with tesla in terms of that kind of standard where do you see this thing going do you see the apple car coming and who do you see as kind of a good potential partner because tesla is not going to do it right so, yeah right <laughs> that would have been the ideal partner that's the yeah. closest brand alignment you know it's such it's such an interesting thing because Obviously, you know, the user experience will be very good. Yes. But uh, I don't know what elements of the Apple ecosystem translate to a car because I don't want to see my text when I'm driving. I had to turn that off in the Tesla. That's you, though. You hate you hate looking at your text generally. <laughs> maybe maybe it's. Yeah. And I might be in the minority here. I <laughs> probably am. But I, yeah. I'm bad with my text. I'm slow with email. I'm. Yeah if you call me there's a 30 percent chance 20 percent chance i pick up like i'm very 
very much like in my own world and i like it that way i work yeah. hard to keep it that way so i think like i don't i'm not a big fan of like super integrated ecosystems when it comes to driving because of yeah. the purity of driving but yeah. i think it'll create a really really seamless experience that allows people to potentially you know even do their zoom calls when the, when they're on the road and different pieces like that um and i'm sure it'll have the self-driving and all the all the bells and whistles done really well but i can't imagine anything beyond what tesla's done that apple could bring to the table other than blue text messages yeah i mean what i do like about it is i do think um i like competition generally and i think tesla is so far ahead of the game and everything else everybody else that i'm seeing because they've mastered a way to give people a luxury driving experience at a reasonable price right for what you're paying for and what you get um in a tesla versus buying a bmw 3 series right it's completely different different experiences yeah um but apple could be the player that keeps tesla on its toes and i like that right i liked when samsung came into the fray and and kind of gave apple some competition because a lot of people technology wizards will say that the samsung phone is actually better um but the apple just is better marketed um and and they know how to get consumers to need them <laughs> more than any other company awesome i totally agree and i think that it'll be interesting to see what happens with you know this electric vehicle race gm having just declared they were going totally electric i think it was 2034 2035 i think yeah so We'll and see oil, what it's going to do to the oil and gas industry, which is hey, the oil and gas industry is one of the heaviest investors in electric. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's do, smart. They have to. It'll do very little, in my yeah. in my eyes. Yeah. Hey, it's man, good, it's good it's sector a, to get into if you're not into it. Yeah. Yeah, driving. If you can get into an electric car, it's good for the world, and they go fast. They go fast, and they save you a lot of money on all the stuff that bothers you you won't have leaks on your garage floor anymore so many little things that i appreciate no oil changes like so many things you know and and you just get tesla's the tires goal, rotated and That's tesla's it. goal is to make their car 20 to twenty five thousand dollar to their entry level vehicle to be a 20 to twenty five thousand dollar car so it won't be too long before it's accessible to all yeah well this has been an awesome pilot boys podcast Yes. Great interview earlier. Some touch on the news. We got to appreciate the greatness of both Tom Brady and the weekend. Yes. Ooh. And uh the greatness of Bitcoin. Yes. Which has, <laughs> you know, gotten you a few trips to Vegas. Yes. If I ever cash out, I'm just leaving it in there, man. But uh <laughs> you know, with that said, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope you enjoy our interviews um and, and how we're adjusting our format. Um, we want to encourage everyone out there to stay moving, uh, keep your energy going, and also always remember to be you. You is fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on up.